Fantastic. So today is Good Friday, and uh, it is, I think, a day for reflection uh, as we consider what it actually means for those of us who are followers of Jesus and what its significance is. And uh, it occurs to me that, that human history is just a long road, isn't it? We, we just travel a few short miles during our lifetimes. But on that road, uh, partway along, there, there came a day that changed everything. And that was Good Friday. And there's a sense in which humanity before Good Friday looked forward to that day. Uh, we live this side of Good Friday. We look back. Um, we, we do that every Sunday as we share bread and wine together. We're going to do that this evening. There is a sense, of course, in which we also look forward to the fulfillment and culmination of what Jesus achieved on the cross. So Good Friday is the day that changed everything. It's the central part of God's plan of salvation. It's been described as the hinge of history, and history is, of course, his story. Do you know, I used to have this, um, this view of the uh, Bible that, that was some, somewhat um, miscued, shall we say. I thought Jesus just turned up in the New Testament. He, he lived this perfect life. He died on the cross uh, so, so we can have eternal life. Well, yes, he did. But I think to conclude that he just turned up in the New Testament is to miss God's plan of redemption and the scope and the depth of his love for us. Good Friday was not God's knee-jerk reaction to some unexpected problem. Jesus wasn't God's plan B. He was there at the very beginning of history, and I think that's important. The first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, I bet you wouldn't have guessed that. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. The first word in the Bible is a Hebrew word. It's Bereshit. It means through the firstborn as well as in the beginning. Who was the firstborn? Well, it's Jesus, of course, isn't it? So Genesis 1.1, you can read as follows. Through Jesus, God created heaven and earth. And I think that's important. It gives us a different perspective that the man who hung on the cross on Good Friday was the very same God who created heaven and earth and indeed time itself. Fully divine, but fully human. So as we, we trace human history, it starts with Adam and Eve. Sin entered the world, death, destruction, corruption. We see the results all too apparently around us, don't we? The perfect relationship between God and man was destroyed. A curtain was pulled across or a door was shut. You can sort of choose your own metaphor, really. But, you know, when God pronounces judgment, there's invariably a way back. And uh, one thing I've discovered more recently is that the Bible is all about the way back. It's all about Jesus. And so as we journey through the Old Testament, the curtain is slowly and surely pulled back to re reveal the Messiah who is to come. There is a progressive revelation of God's plan of redemption. In Amos 3, 7, it says, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals it through his servants, the prophets. And the whole of the Old Testament prophesies about the coming Messiah. The first one is in Genesis 3.15. It talks about one is coming who will crush Satan's head. Well, that's, that's Jesus on the cross. But here's the thing. It says he'll be the offspring of the woman, Eve. It's going to be human. The Messiah will be a human being. Adam and Eve taught their children, Cain and Abel, to bring their best offering to God. Cain brought a produce, the fruit of his labor. That's not acceptable. You can't come to God through your best effort. Abel brought a lamb. That was acceptable. So we learn that a blood sacrifice will be required. 
Genesis 22, God promises to bless mankind through the line of Abraham. Jesus is, of course, the ultimate blessing. So he'll come through the line of Abraham. He'll be Jewish. Genesis 49, we learn that he'll be of the tribe of Judah. And then we find that he'll come from the line of David. And the Old Testament prophets add to this picture. There are over 300 direct prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. Incredible. How can this be? Well, it's because the Bible is the divinely inspired supernatural word of God, of course. And then it happens. It happens. The Messiah appears. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, that God's anointed one, takes his place in, in, in human history. Jesus lived 30 unremarkable years until the age of 30. And then we know how his public ministry starts. John the Baptist baptized him. And in that moment, John the Baptist realized who Jesus was. His first words recorded by uh, the gospel writer John, uh, I, I think significant. John the Baptist simply said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that moment, John the Baptist understood who Jesus was. He understood his mission. He understood his purpose. And uh, to unpack a little bit what that means, because at first sight, it seems a bit strange that John the Baptist would call Jesus a, a lamb. What's that about? Well, we need to go back um, one and a half thousand years to Egypt. Um, the Israelites were in Egypt and we know that um, they'd been slaves for, for, for many years. God was preparing to allow his people to leave. And he sent a series of plagues or afflictions on, uh, on, on Pharaoh to persuade him to, uh, to let them go. The final plague, the final affliction was the angel of death would pass through the country. And on the last, uh, on a particular evening, um, the firstborn in every family would die. Um, the Israelites were commanded to take a lamb and to kill it, to smear the blood on the doorposts. By doing so, the angel of death would pass them by. The Israelites were saved not by their, uh, not by their ethnicity, not, their not by their race. They were saved by the blood. And in one sense, three and a half thousand years later, nothing has changed. We are also saved by the blood. And so God's plan of restoration continues and Passover becomes an annual requirement. All Jews were required to travel to Jerusalem. Every family had to sacrifice a one-year-old lamb without spot or blemish. Why did they have to do that? Because sin had to be dealt with. God requires the price to be paid. Jesus died on Passover. What a coincidence. Not at all. It was the late great Bible scholar Chuck Missler who said, there is nothing in the Bible that's there by chance. There is no coincidence. Everything is there by divine purpose for a reason. And so the final week of Jesus's life before his crucifixion starts on the day we call Palm Sunday. On that day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. This was significant. It was, it was the first time that Jesus had revealed publicly who he was. He was the Messiah. He was the King of Israel. He was the Redeemer. Palm Sunday was the, was the 10th day of the Jewish day of Nisan. It was the day of the lambs. On the day that he rode into Jerusalem, the lambs were presented to the priest. As Jesus entered the city, there were thousands of lambs being presented to the priest. They had to be presented to ensure that they were 
without spot or blemish. The Roman historian Josephus estimates that there were probably about a quarter of a million lambs in Jerusalem. The city swelled to many times its usual size. And as the lambs were presented before the priests, Jesus presented himself as the spotless lamb of God. The lambs were taken back into homes for four days. For four days, Jesus subjected himself to four days of public scrutiny. No one could find any fault in him because there wasn't any. And then Good Friday comes. On the third hour, Jesus was nailed to the cross, nine o'clock in the morning. At the same time, a symbolic lamb was tied to the altar. Jesus spent six hours on the cross, six hours in excruciating pain. The very word excruciating is a Latin word. It means out of the cross. Jesus was the very definition of excruciating pain. On the ninth hour, Jesus died, three o'clock in the morning. At exactly the same time, the priest would approach the altar. He'd kill the lamb and smear its blood on the altar. Jewish tradition states that between 3 and 5 p.m., two hours after Jesus died, as many lambs as possible were killed in the temple. Josephus again estimates it was probably between 15 and 20,000 lambs were killed in the temple. You think two questions spring to mind. First of all, what have the lambs done wrong? Absolutely nothing. Why did they have to die? Did Jesus have to die? Well, yes and no. The lambs had to die. A price had to be paid. Sin is serious. It was then. It is today. It needs dealing with. Jesus paid the price for our sin. Isaiah 53 says, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Could God ignore sin? Haven't you ever wondered? God, God can do anything, right? So surely God can just ignore sin. He can say, okay, just, just let it go. You know, try harder next time. No, he can't. God can't do everything. There's one thing I think that God can't do. God cannot contradict himself. He can't be somebody he's not. When Moses was preparing to go to Pharaoh, he asked God, who shall I say sent me? And God replied, he just said, I am who I am. God cannot change. God cannot compromise. God cannot be somebody he's not. You know, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. These are not opposites. They're complementary. It's funny how many Christians know texts on love. John 3, 16, God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't boast, it isn't proud. Three things remain, faith, hope and love. The greatest of these is love. The Beatles sang about all you need is love. I remember a pop song in the 80s, love is the answer. But, you know, I would suggest that probably less Christians can quote texts about the justice of God. Justice is right. It doesn't quite slip off the tongue the same way, does it? Maybe because it has overtones of accountability or judgment or. But, you know, it's good. It's right, because if you look at the world happening, the things happening in the world around us, doesn't your heart just cry out for justice? But you can't just apply justice to certain people. It's got to be applied across the board. It's got to be applied to you and me. 
there's um, a preacher that, that Pam and I follow quite a bit in America called Jack Hibbs. He, he, Jack Hibbs puts it this way. He says the only difference between him and the worst criminal is circumstance. And I think that's very true. The Bible says, Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God doesn't recognise degrees of falling short. We've all fallen short. We're all sinners in need of a saviour. Even Paul, the great evangelist, wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. There's an analogy at this point, which I think is quite useful. Supposing I'm, I'm driving my car past your house and rather carelessly I knock over your garden wall. Well, a price needs to be paid for that. I, it's my fault. I need to pay for that. I need to, to uh, put it right. Um, you're, you're probably such lovely people. You'd probably say to me, it's OK. It's OK. We'll, I'll, I'll sort it for you. Well, that's great. But that's going to cost you. You could claim on insurance, but the policyholders would have to pay that. Whichever way you look at it, a price must be paid. Well, sin is like that. A price has to be paid for sin. Jesus paid that price on the cross. But just to continue the analogy a little bit, supposing I turn up at your house with um, a bag full of cash in the days when we use cash and say, look, I'm, I'm going to pay for it. Here's, here's some money. Repay your wall. And you say, no, I don't want it. There's absolutely nothing I can do. I, I can't make you take the money for a gift to be given, for a price to be paid. You need two things. It's got to be freely given, but it's got to be accepted as well. And God will not violate our free will. We have the choice. We have the choice whether to accept Jesus or not. God won't override our free will. C.S. Lewis said there are two kind of people in this world. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. But equally, there are those to whom God says, OK, have it your own way. Good Friday demands a response. Salvation isn't automatic. We have to accept what Jesus did on the cross. But, you know, for us as believers, I'm guessing that most, if not all of us, have already made that decision. Good Friday still demands a response from us. It says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ's life lives in me. The challenge for us as Christians, I think, is to identify with that and to die to self day by day. It's like Jay Fallon was telling us a couple of weeks ago, we need to die to self. And that's an ongoing thing, isn't it? It's not a one-off. We need to do so every day. By doing so, we recommit to his purposes in our lives individually and corporately. So Jesus died as the ultimate Passover lamb. You might be thinking, well, Passover is Jewish. We're Christians. We have Easter. Well, yeah, OK, we do. But Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, since Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. So let us keep the feast. So who was he writing to? He was writing to the Corinthians, Greeks, Gentiles. There'd have been some Jews in the Corinthian church, but mainly Gentiles, non-Jews. What Paul was saying was Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. He's the lamb of God who died for all of humanity. There is one important difference, of course. The sacrificial lambs covered sin. 
they didn't take it away. They dealt with it temporarily. It, they, they put a sticking plaster over sin, if you like. Jesus took it away. He dealt with it. It's gone. It says in Isaiah 43, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. You know, I'm thinking, how, how do I, I finish this? And there's a sense in which it's not finished, is it? Because there's a, a famous song written the last century. It says, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. This is only part of the story, isn't it? Easter Sunday is still to come, the day when Jesus defeated death. We live in the now, but not yet of history. Titus 2.13 says, we have the blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory and of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That is future. That is the hope we have as believers. So I'm thinking, what, what's my takeaway thought here on Good Friday? You know, we sometimes struggle to understand God, don't we? We, we, we understand some of his attributes. John 14, 9, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But to understand that the depth of his love and quite what he went through on the cross, we, we struggle, we, we scratch the surface, don't we? Um, something I find amazing is that God created human beings with free will, knowing that we would blow it, knowing that we would sin. He knew that from before the beginning of time. It wasn't a surprise when sin entered the world. But even more amazingly, God created human beings with free will. He knew we'd blow it. And he knew it would cost him everything to bring us back to redeem us. What an amazing thought that is. I'd, I'd just like to um, finish <clears throat> with the words of somebody who um, summed up and expressed what Good Friday is all about better than I can. Um, I, I love the songs we sing on a, a Sunday morning. They're great worship songs, aren't they? But I also love the old hymns um, and uh, the great Methodist hymn writer, Charles Wesley, wrote um, a hymn that probably expresses what Good Friday is all about better than I can. I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. But I would <laughs> just like to read a couple of verses which um, I, I find are quite amazing. He wrote this in 1738 just a few months after coming to faith, after recognising that Jesus died for him. And so as I read these couple of verses, maybe you could just uh, use it as a meditation or, or a thought um, as, as to what Good Friday is all about. It goes like this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Well, that's Good Friday, but what's the practical outworking of that? What's the result? Here it is, last verse. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we, we do not have words that can adequately express just um, what it cost you to go to the cross on Good Friday. We don't have words that can begin to express our gratitude. But nevertheless, we, we come before you today 
um, just just full of wonder and awe that you would go to such depths, um, such extremes of love to, to win us back. And so we thank you for your plan of redemption, your plan of salvation. We thank you that it's Good Friday, but Easter, Easter Sunday is coming, the day when you defeated death and rose again. And by doing so, enabled us to have eternal lives. So, Father God, we our only response really is to recommit to your purposes in our life. We acknowledge that we are dead to sin. We died with you on that cross on Good Friday. So, uh, Lord, we just uh, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Amen. <laughs>